Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Uh, Mark 4, 35 through 41 says, That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. So this kind of remind, reminds us where we were, that Jesus was actually in the boat preaching at one point. He was talking to people from the boat, as he often would do. And so it says that when they're done, he just says, let's just, let's take the boat on over to the other side. Maybe the crowd wasn't dissipating. Maybe he needed some time to rest. Uh, there's a reason to think that's what's happening here. He's just worn out. Um, we'll see that reason in a second. So he's like, let's just, you know, we, we, if we take the boat just right where I am, if we just head off across the lake here, nobody can follow us right now. And I think that's kind of what's happening. Um, it says there were also other boats with him. So this is just a, an aside. Again, maybe there's just other other disciples following him. Some of the crowd does come with him. Uh, maybe it's other fisher boats. We don't really know. It's an interesting just thing that gets mentioned here. But it says there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So it's, you know, these are small boats. These are not big, huge, large boats. Um, they're fishing boats and they're, there's enough for, you know, uh, maybe half a dozen, I'm guessing. Um, not not super big boats. <clears throat> and uh, but the, so when they get swamped, they get swamped. It's not good. You know, the water's coming up. The storms are coming. Um, and we'll see from the the apostles' reactions, some of whom are fishermen, that it's uh, you know it's pretty serious and it's pretty scary. It says a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And then it says this: Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. So I say he may have been worn out. He's been preaching. He was like, let's just get away for a little bit. Um, and in fact, he's he's just laying down in the boat and he's sleeping. The storm is coming up. He's not even feeling it. Like the water must be hitting him because it's swamping the boat. Um, and he's sleeping, but he's uh, he's just kind of sleeping through it. And the disciples woke him and said to him, "Teacher, don't you care if we drown?" He's sleeping so hard they're just they're just amazed. They're just like, "Don't you even care?" He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, "Quiet, be still." And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, "Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith?" And they were terrified and asked each other, "Who is this?" Even the wind and the waves obey him. So we're going to see this story recorded two more times. It was a story that had made an impression on the apostles. And so they, they it comes up in all of the Gospels, except for John. Um, but I like, and, and, and so we'll read it again in a second. But one of the things that I really like in this, this, in this version that Mark records is what they ask Jesus. That they say, don't you care uh, that we're going to drown? Because it feels very relatable to me, and yet it seems like such an important lesson that their assumption is, as the as the storm is coming, and they're they're afraid for their lives, and they look around to Jesus to see if he's going to rescue them, and he's asleep, their assumption is he's indifferent. He's indifferent to their fate. He doesn't care that they're going to drown. Now, that's understandable, and I, it's relatable, because I think we often feel that way with God, that, that when we're undergoing a trial or something's ha happening as hard to us, and it feels like God is asleep at the wheel, um, he's just not taking care of it, he's not doing anything about it, it feels like maybe he just doesn't care, you know, he's just indifferent to it. So they they say to him, don't you care that we're going to drown? The thing that's humorous about it that that shows they're also not completely aware as they're saying that is he's in the boat with them. So if he doesn't care if they drown, it would mean he didn't care if he drowned. And I don't think that's what they're implying, but it just shows there's a disconnect in their question. 
And then when Jesus gets up and he simply rebukes the wind and the wave, and I really like this because it's even the term rebuke and then the, ter the, the words he uses, quiet, be still, it really is just like a parent reproving a mildly obnoxious child. It's it's not even like a big deal. It's not like Jesus has to wrestle with the wind or he has to he has to yell at it or he has to do some big magic thing. He just says, stop, quiet, hush. And it and it does. And it obeys him that quickly, just a mild rebuke. Then what the apostles see and we see is that indifference and lack of fear are not the same thing. Jesus cared if they were going to drown. He just didn't have any concern they were going to drown. He knew they weren't going to drown. He knew they weren't going to drown because he knew that the wind and the waves were in his control. I think it's it's the, the apostles, it's interesting even that the Jewish culture, and, and this may come from the fact that they were desert-faring uh, people for a long time. Uh, the fact that they were fishermen in Rome just has to do with where they lived and, and adjustments they made. But but the Jewish culture has this picture of, of the ocean and the seas and storms as being sort of bad omens. They're not big, you know, water-faring people. It's it's interesting that even in Revelation, when John describes what heaven will be like, and I, I this may be literal, but I think it's also fair to see this as a metaphor, a symbol that makes, that appeals to John as an Israelite. He says that the, the heaven will have no sea. There will be no water. And I think what he means by that is that there will be no storms. There will be no tribulation. There will be no trials. And so, for them, you know, storms are a big deal. This is it. And for Jesus, they're not. And I think one of the reasons that storms appear to be a big deal is because they're so much not in control, right? When you're in a boat and the waves are crashing at you and the wind is rushing at you, you're not, that's, that's things you can't control. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't make the wind stop and you can't make the waves crash. The best you can do is try to navigate the boat in such a way that it doesn't overcome you. But even that is not controlling the waves and the wind. It's just kind of surviving it. And yet Jesus gets up and controls it. So I think that I, I like that picture that sometimes we feel God doesn't care. It isn't that God doesn't care. It's that he knows he's in control. He knows he's got it taken care of. He's not afraid. Um, and that can look very similar to us. And so I, I kind of like that picture in here where they learn that lesson. And then they are, they're amazed. They're like, wow, even the wind and waves obey him. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Don't you understand who I am? After everything I've seen, do you really think that the wind and the waves are outside of my control? And they answer that question. I mean, when he does it, their response is amazement. So yes, they really didn't believe he had that much control. They've seen him do amazing things, but they're just constantly being reminded anew how much authority he really has. And for them to have authority over the wind and the waves is kind of a pinnacle of authority. That's a, again, that's an uncontrollable thing. That's why I think it's such a good metaphor in our own lives for what appear to be the most uncontrollable parts of our lives, the things that do overwhelm us and swamp our boats um, as they're listed here. So let's see, <coughs> he goes on, or he doesn't go on, but Matthew tells the same story. Chapter eight, verse 23, it says this, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. All right, do you guys notice any differences uh, between these two versions? What differences do you see? Well, amazed, <clears throat> amazed versus terrified. Okay. 
and maybe not verses, but you can feel both at once, right? Well, I mean, the first thing it says is then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Yep. So it might be like a different time or something. It, it could. It's so similar other than that, that it's probably the same. Time. Yeah, that's true. But but it, but this is one of those things, again, where it it's 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 describing the same event from a different vantage point. Right. So it is true. He got into the boat and it is true. The disciples followed him in 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 Mark. It's just following up. We already knew he was in the boat. In Mark's story, he got into the boat to preach. In Matthew's story, he may have gotten into the boat to preach, but Matthew's not mentioning that. So it's he's just kind of compressing it a little bit which is fair. Um, but yeah, that is something that it reads different. Yep. Agreed. What else? Anything else? Matthew, in Matthew, it says, Lord, save us. Yeah. And yeah. Mark, it says, don't you care? We're going to drown. Yeah. This is one of the things I noticed. And again, this is not a conflict because <laughs> I'm sure that again, anytime you read that, it says the disciples woke him saying it, it's not implying <laughs> that they all spoke in unison, right? It's implying that they were all saying things, and this particular author picks one of the things that was being said. So at the same time that somebody's saying, don't you care that we're going to drown? What's fascinating to me is that one, don't you care that we're going to drown, implies that God isn't good enough, he isn't loving enough, that Jesus doesn't care enough about them. This one implies that Jesus isn't smart enough, right? It's like it's like they're telling him, like, he doesn't know, like, hey, we're going to drown, <laughs> we're not accusing you of not caring. We are kind of accusing you that you don't know that we're going to drown. We need to tell you that we're going to drown so you'll save us. Um, so they're sort of implying he's not he's not smart enough to know what's happening, which is as ludicrous as implying that he doesn't care. Because, of course, once he's awake, he can see what's happening. He sees it's the wind and the wave. And not only does he see it, but he can control it. Again, it's it's not a big deal to him. Yeah, that's good. I so also, other than that, also, the it's very similar. Yes, go ahead. Um, in the Mark passage, they refer to him as teacher. And in the Matthew passage, they refer to him as Lord. And I was wondering, the, te the teacher, uh, maybe, maybe they, in that one, they don't, they don't think of him as Lord. Yeah, maybe Therefore, so. they're saying, don't you, don't you care? They, they sure. didn't, and they say, who is this man? Yeah, the apostles there's, there's were more all... doubt. Apostles are all at different places in how they see him, probably. And so it makes sense that one might call him Lord and one teacher. The, the term Lord here, I'd have to look. There's different uses of the word Lord. And it normally, in the NIV, if it's not all in caps, which is not here, it really is more akin to, like, teacher anyway. It's more akin to, uh, you're like our leader, uh, Lord. So it may not be that different, um, in fact. But I, I'd have to look a little more closely. I don't remember for sure about all the language there. But that's good. I, I think it's nonetheless true that different apostles are relating to him in different ways, which is why you're getting even different different words here. Um, but hold that thought because it's 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 a theme that comes up, I think, a lot in scripture. And I'll touch on it after we read the third one. The idea that, you know, when we struggle with trials, when we struggle with storms, even knowing God is there, a lot of times what we struggle with is believing he doesn't care. He's not good enough. He's not loving enough. Or believing that he's not smart enough. Oftentimes, that's really where our anxiety comes from. Because if he's good enough and he's smart enough, then by and large, we should be okay. Um, but let's go on to Luke 8, because there's a third element to that. Luke 8, 22 through 25, same story. It says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over, over to the other side of the lake. So this one starts out more similar to the Matthew, right? Where it sounds like he's just getting in the boat to go over. Um, again, I think it's the same story. I think it's just sort of telling it from a different different vantage point. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. 
As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. So there you go. You've got Lord and teacher and Master. They may all ostensibly be the same thing, or maybe there are nuances there that again show where they're coming from. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples in fear and amazement. So there we go. Matthew said fear. Mark said amazement. Luke says both. So <laughs> he, he captured both thoughts. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. So they've been with him all this time. And that's why he says, where's your faith? Because they are showing that this is a new level of understanding of his power. Who is this man? It's not just a thing he's done. It suddenly is becoming more and more clear to them that he is even more than they thought he was. He, the Messiah, I think, is a given for them by this point. But now he's something more. He has such incredible power that even the most uncontrollable things in the world to them are under his control. You know, the mo at least the most uncontrollable natural things, you know, the storms, those kinds of things are the power of God to them. And here is Jesus controlling that, just, just completely stopping it. And the winds and waves obey him. That's a level of authority they haven't seen. I think if you put these three stories together with their emphasis being on recognizing his power, all, all of them show that they're recognizing his power, but it's really the way they say it here, the winds and the waves, and they obey him. And who is this man? Um it, it is a theme I see a lot. And so some of it is me because I see it a lot. I'm, I'm reading it into it. But it's interesting these three versions kind of highlight it this way, um, even if it's just coincidental, that I think what comes up a lot is this idea that when we struggle in our trials, when we feel like the boat is being swamped and, and we feel out of control and we get afraid, and that's all normal. I'm not condemning fear. Fear is good. It's part of what drives us to God. But I think when we are feeling that and we're struggling with God, it's usually one of those three things. It's that God is not smart enough, he doesn't care enough, or he's not strong enough. Because if he does care enough, and he is smart enough, and he is strong enough, then the only other thing that matters is if he's with us or not. And in this story, where is he? He's with them, but he's asleep. And being asleep leads to the question, does he not understand how bad things are for me? That he's not doing anything? Uh, being asleep leads to the question, does he not care what happens to me because he's not doing anything? And being asleep leads to the question of, well, I guess he's tired, so does he not even have the power to take care of this? And so I think, although I don't think God literally sleeps, except when Jesus was in human form, I do think that sense of, well, is God here? And if he is here, is he strong enough? Is he smart enough? Does he care? If those are all answered yes, to the degree we're convinced of that is probably to the degree we have peace, even in the storm. Um, because really, if that's what we've got, what else matters? Um, and so I just kind of like that. This is one of my favorite pictures of the authority and power of Jesus and how, how we can learn to respond in the storm. Um, and also, I tend to read those, where's your faith, or why don't you have faith, or don't you have faith yet? I tend to read those gently. It's possible to read those as sort of harsh and frustrated and irritated criticisms. But given everything we know about Jesus up till now, that doesn't seem a fair way to read them. I think it is more just kind of a, a question. It's, it's kind of a gentle challenge. You know, hey, <laughs> you've seen me do all these things. Don't you know me yet? Um, you know, where where's your faith in this? And and maybe even a little bit of wonder, you know, that it is interesting that you still don't get it. But I don't think he's being, I think he's being gentle. I don't think he's being mean. Um, I don't think he's being impatient um, because Jesus doesn't seem to be impatient uh, really anywhere in scripture. So David, uh, yeah, please. Did you wear that shirt just for this? 
I did. That's what she said. Very good. Good catch. Uh-huh. This is this is one of my favorite shirts. <laughs> it says, Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. Um, <laughs> although, yes, and it is. See, it's Mark 4, whatever the reference is. You can't read it because it's really small. But yes, yes, I actually did. I thought, oh, I will wear my Jesus took naps shirt. I also wear it because then it justifies naps. So that's really why I like this shirt. Uh, very good. Any other comments on this, these, these uh, passages? Any other thoughts on this story? All right. Well, it continues. They they cross the lake, and the story just continues. We don't move to another time. We're just kind of picking up right there. So it says they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This is fascinating to me because we go right from a story of powerful natural forces to a story of powerful supernatural forces. Both things that would have been seen as uncontrollable and fearful by the apostles. You know, it, it, you could easily see that if you ask them, what are they afraid of most in the world? They might say storms and weather and, 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 and drowning. And then if you ask them, what are they most afraid of in the spiritual world? They might have said demons. And here we have a story of Jesus' authority going right from one to the other. So they're getting a good crash course here on Jesus' power and authority and ability to protect them. Because here we have a man who's not only demon-possessed, but he is uncontrollable. They, they can't even bind him. Um, and so he lives in the tombs. He just runs wild um, and, uh, and, and kind of does what he wants. Um, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones He's self-destructive. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. It's interesting, all three of these versions we're going to see right in this weird backwards chronology. They tell us what he says and then tell us what Jesus said that prompted that. I don't know why all three of them tell the story that way. It feels awkward. Um, but they do. Maybe it's more exciting, more dramatic to tell us what he said first. But but what this is telling us is that Jesus meets this man and says to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So he calls the, the demon out of the man. And in response to that, the spirit answers and says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. There's a couple of things going on here in this response. And, and, and the first is that... Um, Many mythos and religions and superstitions of the world believe that there's power in knowing somebody's name. And so some people believe that this, this statement that the, the uh, demon makes, where he calls him Jesus, Son of the Most High God, is an attempt to sort of show that they know who Jesus is and sort of claim control over him. It's possible, but if but if that's what they're doing, it shows they're confused, number one, because that's not how it works. Um and number two, it's not very convincing because their very next statement is a plea. And, and one of these, if it's not here, one of the other gospel writers definitely describes the spirit as begging Jesus not to hurt them. So there's a real recognition of where the real authority is. So I don't know if they're using his full title, Jesus, son of the God most high, in order to try to control him. It's possible. I think it's also just possible they're using it in order to try to 
you know, appease him. Like if you're, if you're meeting with like Nehemiah, when he meets with the king, who the king has the ability to kill him or Esther, when she meets with the king who has the ability to kill him, they call him by his full name, you know, king, most honored king, most excellent king. So it could just be their way of just kind of saying, we know who you are. Please don't use your authority to hurt us. Yes, Meredith. Well, I just thought it was weird when the first time you were reading it through too, because right after that, it says in God's name, don't torture me. But I guess that kind of makes sense too with the kind of the name thing, or maybe he's like connecting it like Jesus and God or like for pity or I don't know. It just, I just found that interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird, it's not a turn of phrase you expect from a demon, right? You don't necessarily expect them to do that. But I think it's a recognition. Yeah. I think what all this boils down to in reality is I don't think they think they can control Jesus. I think in reality, the demons know their position in the authority of the universe, and it is in submission to God. They do not have authority over God. God is not their equal opposite. God is is infinitely more powerful than they are. They are creations of his ultimately. And so I think that in 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 the long run, I think even saying in God's name, there, it's an attempt to to appeal to the authority that they know that they're under, um, yeah, I think, ultimately. But it is, you're right, it definitely catches your ear. You're like, that's interesting that they said this. The, this story gets even weirder about that, though. And and we'll see that in a second. It's, it's interesting the way Jesus bargains with them, and I don't know why he does. Um, and I'll be interested in your thoughts on that. But But here's what happens. It says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So again, I think this is intended, following the wind and wave story, to be an example of Jesus's power over supernatural things, just as the previous story was was an example of Jesus' power over natural things, both fearsome and both kind of at their height. And so in this story that they are telling of Jesus' power and authority over supernatural things, it's of not just one supernatural being, but many of them. Now, a legion in Rome is like 2,000. I don't think we have to assume there's 2,000 spirits in this man, although I don't know how spirits work. Maybe they can all fit in one man. It's like that old question, how many angels dance on the head of a pin? I don't know. But I don't think any of them do. I don't think they have any reason to dance on the head of a pin. But but the, the but it, but but there could be thousands because it does say, in fact, I'm sorry, Legion is like 20,000. Pardon me. I don't know if there's that many, but there could be 2,000 because we're going to see in a second, that's the number of pigs that he sends them into. So perhaps there are thousands in this man. Whatever it is, I think the point is just, this isn't just one spirit. This is a this is a multitude. Um, it's an especially sort of powerful example to see. And this is what it says. This is where it says it. For we are many, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Um, we're going to see more detail about their begging and some of the other stories, but this is an interesting point, if for no other reason than because it is very different from any exorcism movie I've ever seen from Hollywood. Because in the exorcism movies, the demon always boasts and brags and taunts, and and the, the, the exorcist, granted it's not Jesus, so I'll, I'll buy that's different, but the exorcist is always kind of not sure we're out of, of his footing and the demon always sounds completely cocky but in reality with jesus this demon is a coward and and i think if if demons are are sort of all that is not good in the same way that god is all that is good then then cowardice would be part of who they are and so i think the devil's a coward and i think the demons are cowards and but i think they do they beg him they know that they are not strong enough there's no boasting here there's no bragging here there's no cockiness they know they're in trouble all they want is to not get sent 
as we'll find out in one of the other stories back to the void, whatever that means. But but then the story gets weird. First of all, Jesus doesn't have to listen to their boasts. I mean, to their to their to their pleading. He doesn't have to listen to their begging. I, I'm not sure why he does, but he does. It says this: a large herd of pigs was heating up, was feeding on a nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. So whatever else is going on here, again, the point is Jesus' authority is clear. They can't even go into a pig without Jesus' permission to do so. So he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, so that could be legion, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Okay, I don't understand any of this. Why is he accommodating their request? But then even weirder, why are they requesting to go into pigs and then immediately killing themselves so that they are going the place they didn't want to go? It doesn't make any sense to me, except that what I think we do see if we, without understanding all the mechanics here, what we do see is that Jesus is in power and demons are just self-destructive and don't have really a lot else that they are interested in doing. And it was worth it to them to go into the pigs and be self-destructive for the brief moment they could do it rather than to go into the void where apparently they can't be self-destructive. Maybe it's like their only satisfaction comes from destroying something. And even though that means by destroying it, they no longer have that vessel. Maybe somehow that's still better to them than just being sent away. I, I don't know. The whole story is pretty peculiar. Um, I, I'll, I'll be interested in your comments in a second, but we have another couple versions of it to read. Uh, but, it, but there's a little more here. It says those tending the pigs ran off. So they got to have mixed feelings about this, right? I mean, 2,000 pigs is not cheap. <laughs> here are these people. They've had this crazy guy running around. Jesus rescues this crazy guy, but now they, he's taken all their pigs away. I imagine they're not completely happy about that. Also, the whole thing is weird. And as weird as it is to us, imagine actually being there. Imagine actually watching this whole thing take place in front of you. And it says, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Do they want him to leave because he destroyed their pig commerce? Well, it tells us they're afraid. And it's interesting that they're afraid. They're more afraid of the man being in his right mind than they were of him being out of control. Because, because, because they couldn't fix it. Because his being out of control, they saw as a sort of a, 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 an inevitable position. This guy, would nobody would ever be able to control this guy. Nobody would be able to fix him. He was just gone for good. And for Jesus to have the power to, to change that is terrifying to them. What kind of power is this man? Similar, even more so, to the power that, that the disciples were afraid of when they saw him in the waves and the wind. So I think these stories do kind of relate to each other. Let's just read it a couple more times, then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, hear what you guys think about all this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed... Oh, sorry, I didn't finish the story yet. Let's finish this version first. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So this is interesting. Um, one of the commentaries pointed out, just as a point of strange interest that the demons plead, they beg Jesus for something, and he gives it to them. 
And then the man begs Jesus for something and he doesn't. And if that doesn't confuse you about the mysterious ways of God, I don't know what does, because you'd think it would be the other way around. But I think we can see that that he begs to go with Jesus. And I think there's a couple of dynamics here that would be understandable. One is the man fa- may feel unsafe if he's not with Jesus. That, that, that completely makes sense to me, that he'd be afraid that the demons would come back, that no one else has been able to help him. His best bet is to stick with Jesus, which is not a bad impulse. That's the impulse we should all have. Um, but Jesus doesn't want him to come. Jesus is working up in all these stories to sending the apostles out with power. And apparently, he doesn't. he's not bringing this guy along to be an apostle that he's going to send out with power later. He's actually going to send this guy out now. And there's a couple of reasons I think this may be the case. And I think one of the hints might be in where he sends the man. He sends the man, he says, back to his people. And when he sends him back to his people, he goes to the Decapolis, which is Gentile territory. It's literally 10 Roman cities, heavily Roman, heavily Gentile. I think this is a Gentile. Didn't tell us specifically if this man was Gentile or Jew, but I think he's a Gentile. And I think Jesus is sending him back to the Gentiles to tell them what God has done. Because this kind of display of power would resonate with the Gentiles. This is the kind of acts they expect from a God. Some of the things that Jesus did as Messiah wouldn't resonate as much for the Gentiles as they do for the Jews. But what he's done here, freeing the man from 2,000 demons, that would resonate. That they would see as an act of power that they would be responsive to. And the people in Decapolis, a lot of them have heard of this man. He's been he's been for years running rampant and crazy and, and self-destructive. And now here he is speaking and articulating and wearing clothes and, and behaving. And so when he goes and talks to them, they listen. So I think Jesus says, number one, you're healed. You're truly healed. You don't need to hang out with me in that sense just to, to, to be healed. But number two, I am sending you on a mission. I don't want you to come with me because I'm not going to send you to the Jews with the rest of the apostles. I'm sending you back to the Gentiles. So in many ways, this is the first Gentile missionary to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul thinks of himself as the first and is in by and large, but but he's a Jew to the Gentiles. This is the first missionary to the Gentiles, and it's from a Gentile. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and pause here before I go and read the other versions. Any comments, any thoughts on this story so far? Well, it's interesting too, because it could also almost be the completion of his healing and restoration, because it's possible that it feels not only is he afraid to not be with Jesus, but maybe he feels like he's burned all his bridges with his people. And so Jesus is saying, no, you are healed. You are restored. Go back to your family. Go back to your people. Your life is restored. I think that's a really good point. And it mirrors something that's going to happen a little bit later. So I think that strengthens your point. Yeah, I like that. That's good. What else? Um. I, I I do think this is like really weird and I don't yeah quite get it I've always thought that but um one thing I was kind of thinking of how it kind of reminded me possibly of like Job and like at the beginning you know where like Satan's there and God's like okay but then he ends up like using it like you know for his own good and just with the the pigs and stuff. Although I don't know. Yeah, I guess to them, but if they weren't, if they weren't Gentiles then they shouldn't have had pigs necessarily anyway, but just that. And then also, I guess to the idea, like with Moses, like how they had kind of like used him as the intercessor. And I'm sure if I had seen all this, I would be 
kind of afraid to hang out with Jesus too. It is a big public demonstration of power. Think about all the times Jesus does things, but it's kind of an isolated group. And sometimes he even says, and he will again in a later story, sometimes he even says, don't tell anybody about this. Keep it mum. This is not that, is it? I mean, this is a story that is big. It's public. Even sending them into the pigs made it even bigger, right? That made a bigger mm-hmm. If he sent them to the void, it would have been the pig tenders wouldn't have even really known maybe what had happened. And then on top of that, he actually tells the guy, go back and tell everybody, which sometimes he says, don't tell people yet. So it does feel like things are ramping up and he's and he's ready for certain people to know who he is to, to begin to to either respond by feeling threatened or or wanting to know more. He's he's kind of upping the ante a little bit in this story, which might be part of its weirdness. Right. Maybe it is weird because it's supposed to be weird because he wants it to be dramatic because he like you say. He's responding to the the demon's request, not because he's responding to the demon's request, but because it actually fits what he wants to do anyway. He wants to make a big, big splash, not to be punny, but since the pigs ran into the water, but yeah. And doing that does also actually help the demon possessed man. Uh, I mean, obviously his behavior is so completely changed, but no one can be like, well, maybe you, you just are having a good day or the demons are trying to trick us. He's like, no, a bunch of people saw the demons leave me and run into the pigs. Like that's the moment that they saw the change come over the man. So it also gives him credit. That's really good. And again, that, that, again, the same story that I said earlier is mirrored later. This, that also is. So the two points you just made come up in another similar story. So I think you're right. I think you're onto something. I think he's doing the same thing in another story we'll see later. So I think those are good points as well. Anybody else have any thoughts? Well, let's read the other two versions um, and see if that spawns any other thoughts or we notice anything else. It says, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Okay, that's an obvious change. Why is it one versus two? Don't know. Um, I, again, I don't believe these are necessarily conflicts. It, it, it could, you know, one can be two, and and you just don't mention one. I don't know. I don't know specifically, though, why it, it, it's two here and not one. Um, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? That's fascinating to me. It shows that demons have an awareness that their their end is not good, <laughs> that there, there will be a day that their appointed time is simply to be tortured. So that, that that's an interesting thing. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Any any other uh, differences that you notice in this? It's a little shorter, um, uh, but other than that, not not wildly different. Um, I did have a thought, but I'll wait until I read the next one because I think it's stronger in the next one. Luke 8, here's his version. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. 
for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. There's that weird chronology again. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So this is a slightly more specific detail about what they're afraid of. I don't know what the abyss is exactly. However, if you take the abyss and connect it to the idea that the other demons had of an appointed time for torture, and then connect that to a reference in Revelation, which says that hell is created for the demons. I'm not saying that humans don't go there. But we're told that hell is created for the demons in the end time. That's that's what it's created for. Maybe that's what they're afraid of. If he sends us out of this man, he has come. The Messiah is here. Maybe the appointed time has come, and we're going to be we're going to be sent to the abyss to hell. I don't know uh, if that's the case um, uh, or not. But it anyway. It, there's a lot of supernatural stuff here. We just don't have enough data on. God has not chosen to give us all the ins and outs of how all this works. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. I also just noticed in this reading this of Luke this time, I hadn't thought about this before, that the way has been paved for the 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 man formerly known as Legion. I don't know what else to call him. I don't know his name. Um, the, the way has been paved for the man formerly known as Legion to share what happened to him because already people have shared it, right? First, there were the people who saw them going to the pigs that told everybody they could. And then it even said after that, that there were people telling everybody what had happened. So by the time he comes, he's already a celebrity. People already know what's happened to him. Now he's just showing up as the proof in the pudding, so to speak, as the proof that is the pudding, whatever that would be. Um, so the, any other thoughts on uh, on these stories? I get hung up on the logistics. Where how did he come? How did he become fully dressed? <laughs> he was running naked around the 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 tombs with uh, ankle bracelets, and all of a sudden, he, his hair's combed and he's fully dressed. Um, I can think of lots of plausible options. Maybe each of the apostles gave him one article of clothing. Maybe <laughs> 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 someone in town who knew him was like, oh, wow, yeah. I hear he's well now and we're out in Grotto. I, when you see a naked man who's not trying to kill you, I think your natural response is to find him clothes. That's just, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in Mark and Luke, it's interesting because the demons speak to Jesus. And so there's, uh, the plural is used. But when Jesus speaks, it's, indicated that he's responding to the singular he's talking to the man even when the man is still possessed it's true yeah what do you what do you take from that just that jesus is still being the person and the so even in this sort of most spectacle based miracle it's still a very obviously personal specific compassionate act that's good i like that 
I like that a lot. And I think we've seen that in both these examples of Jesus' power. In the in in the storm and with the supernatural, Jesus is still aware of the people around. And it and in both cases, it's not just a demonstration of his power, but it's a demonstration of his power in a way that 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 is is compassionate, that is protecting people, that is preserving them, and that is saving them. And I think that we see that a lot, obviously, in most of, you know, you think about the miracles Jesus could do. He could have done a lot of walking on water. He could have done calling fire from the sky. He could have done a lot of things. You think about the the miracles Moses did. None of them were healing. <laughs> they, they were all demonstrations of power, but they were plagues, is what they were literally called. And And yet all, so many, not all, but so many of the demonstrations that Jesus does of his power also happen to be demonstrations of his compassion. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's part of who he is, right? Makes sense that he would do that. Any other thoughts? Yeah, no, I really like that. And the idea that it's uses his power like for us and it's, I don't know, maybe not as we would automatically like see power. Like when he did like the, the wind and the waves, it's like, oh, wow, that's power. But just like the personal things. And, and but, but I mean, they are huge, but, but yeah, it's just like cool with like that power, you know, or even just like, you know, forgiving like sins and stuff like that and seeing it that way. And yeah, yeah, it's good. I think as we go on to this next story, the other thing to see here is that there is there is like a picking up of the pace um, in the way the gospel writers are writing about these events. And I, and I think it's because there is a picking up of the pace in the events, but I think they're also trying to give us a sense of, of movement forward. And, and the sense of movement forward includes this idea. Things are starting to get weirder. Not only is Jesus doing things, but he's starting to do things that are getting weirder. And, and even the way they describe them are stranger. And, and so even like the, the wave and the wind and he's sleeping, that's a little weird, you know, and then he just rebukes it and they're like, what? And then we have this whole Legion story, which is just like, this is a bizarre story. We're dealing with things we don't know about, right? We wouldn't know anything about this, except we hear this discussion and we're trying to figure out what's going on in this, this, this supernatural world we know nothing about. Well, the next story also has a really sort of weirdness to it, oh, um, but it I also have, has that compassion. I, I have one more question. Yeah. The, uh, this area where he was performing these this stuff with the pigs, was that a Gentile area or a Jewish area? Because there, there, it's a herd of pigs. Yes, and and Meredith mentioned this uh, as an aside earlier, and I was going to comment it, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, Jews would not have a herd of pigs. That would have been... Uh, a violation of pretty basic law for them. Um, and you're right. This is, and and the Decapolis is around here. This is a Gentile area, um, more specifically. Yep. So he's performing miracles for the Gentiles to see. And big ones. And then he's sending a Not necessary. Yeah. And then he's sending a Gentile to preach to all the Gentiles about what's happened and what God has done for him. So it is a significant movement of the mission in the Gentile field. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's consistent. The fact that it's the escalation of his miracles is sort of first for this audience is consistent with the fact that he is like with the woman at the well, like with the century. And he's often starting with those populations outside of the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, he's deeply part of that Jewish community, but he is making it really clear that he's for all people. Yeah, that's really good. 
our next story, he's about to do two miracles for Jews, but even there, that's interesting to see some contrast between what happens here compared to some of the things that have happened for, for similar Gentiles. Um, and even these two Jews are very different. And to think about the conflict or contrast between them. And this story is paired. These two stories are paired in all of the Gospels. So I think, number one, it happened this way. But I think, number two, it's just such a beautiful thematic pairing that once it happened this way, the gospel writers, none of them were going to leave it out. None of them were going to tell half this story. They were like, this, this, you have to tell this whole story because there's some really fascinating interplay between these two Jewish people who benefit from Jesus' miracles. And so let's read it. It says, Mark 5, 21 through 43, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, and I don't know if this means he went back to Galilee. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what that means, or if this is just saying, this is just continuing that reminding us that he had crossed over. I don't know if it's a crossing back or just meaning, yeah, I don't know. I can't tell. Maybe it'll tell us a little later as we go. It says, when, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. So this is not a Jew. This, I mean, this is not just a Jew. This is a Jewish leader. This is a synagogue leader. This is a leader of the gathering of Jews. And so uh, Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So I want to ask you a question before we press forward. Does anybody remember a story that's similar to this, somebody coming to Jesus who has a daughter that is dying. Was it the centurion? It was. Roman, yeah. It was the Roman centurion. And does anybody remember any difference between what the centurion asked of Jesus and what this Jewish leader asked of Jesus? Well, the centurion said, you don't have to come. I know you can do it from where you are. Isn't that interesting? So the centurion, of whom Jesus said, had greater faith than he had seen in all Israel. Remember, he complimented the centurion and, and sort of scorned, not scorned, but sort of dissed all his apostles at the same time by saying, I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. But what he meant by that was the centurion came to Jesus and said, you don't even have to come. You do not have to touch my child. You do not have to be there. You just say the word by your authority and my child will be healed. And Jairus doesn't have that same conviction, does he? He he says, come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. I don't want to pick on Jairus. He's still coming to Jesus. He still has the faith to ask Jesus to heal him. But it is an interesting contrast that here's a Jew who, who, who should know more about the Messiah, should have a greater faith, and yet it's the centurion who didn't even think Jesus needed to come. And I think that's part of the reason Jesus said what he did. This is a This is a big faith. This is a big faith that can just say to me, you don't even have to come to my house. Whereas Jairus is like, you have to come. But it's also relevant to the rest of the story that there's a sense of urgency, that Jesus has to come to heal uh, Jairus's daughter. And so Jesus needs to get moving. So it says, so Jesus went with him. Jesus is more than willing. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So they're like, ooh, something exciting is happening. So here's this crowd. I think he probably has crossed back over to Galilee because it would explain Jairus and the synagogue and the crowd waiting for him. So he, <laughs> he's come back. They're pressing around him. It's it's like a mob a little bit, right? This was one of the reasons he got in the boat in the first place. So he's, but they're but they're going, they're all wanting to be the first to see what's going to happen with Jairus's daughter. So it says a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And, and here's this other story right in the middle. And a woman who was there 
A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Let's talk about her for a second. Um, things we don't have to speculate too far to, to understand where she's at. So she's chronically ill. She spent all the money that she has on physicians and none of it's helped. Nothing has been helpful to her. She's seen all the physicians she's can. She's done all the things that, 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 that need to be tried. And her issue very specifically is that she just continues bleeding. Um, it's like a nonstop period, right? That's, that's what's happening here. And, and so she just continues bleeding. But here's the other thing to remember. She's a Jew. This is Jewish territory. And this makes you unclean. According to the law, when a woman is menstruating, she's unclean at that moment. Now, we don't need to have the discussion about how fair or unfair that is. When we were in Leviticus, we talked about why that might not be a bad thing. But but notice the situation that puts her in. I don't think this is the law's fault. This is, again, one of those moments where they're interpreting the law and they haven't figured out what to do with her. Bottom line is, it makes her like a leper. She's not to touch anybody, and she's not to be touched. And she's probably, as one of the commentators pointed out, she's probably been divorced by her husband if she had one. She's spent all her money. She she lives outside of all, all contact. She's not only sick and feeling sick, but she is unclean. And she's not, a, and you wouldn't touch a religious leader. So consider these two people. You've got Jairus, who's a religious leader, who says, come touch my daughter so that she'll be healed. And then you've got this woman who nobody will touch. It's interesting. I, I was reading, and I won't share them with you because they're both boring and bizarre, but there's actually documents we found from around Jesus's time talking about how to cure women who have this condition of just continual bleeding. And they have like 10 or 11 different prescriptions. And it basically says, if this doesn't work, try this. If this doesn't work, try this. But what's interesting about all 11 prescriptions is none of them require the woman be touched by anybody at all. They're all weird things for her to do, like hold a particular stone while sitting in a particular stream or walking a particular direction while wearing a particular thing on her head. They're very bizarre, but 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 none of, none of them are probably useful. This is, you know, suffering under the care of all these physicians. <coughs> but more to the point, none of them require she be touched. None of them require human contact. And And so this is what she's been experiencing. And now here she is in this crowd and she... She's just getting worse and worse, but she hears about Jesus, and here's what it says about her. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, I want you to think about this from her perspective. She knows if she touches Jesus, she's in trouble. She knows that here he is, he's going with Jairus, his temple leader. Jairus himself would not want to be touched by her, probably would be uncomfortable even though she was in the crowd. Here she is in this huge crowd. She's daring to be in this crowd after, after being like a leper, isolated and alone, because she just knows Jesus is so powerful. If she can just but touch his cloak, she will be healed. Now, that may be a weird position for her. It's strange. There's there's no reason to necessarily think that's how Jesus's power works, but but it is a certain kind of faith, which is it's it's no less strong than Jairus's. Jairus said, "If you can just touch my daughter, she'll be healed." She says to herself, "All I have to do is touch his cloak. I don't even have to touch him." So she does. She's desperate. So she goes up. She touches his cloak. Um, it says immediately her bleeding stopped. 
So she thinks if I can just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And she's right. She touches his cloak, immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, I don't know what that means, except the, the bleeding must be that intense that she can tell right away. Maybe she felt some sort of power. I don't know, but she knows. She knows right away that she has been cleansed and not just not just not just healed but freed from her suffering she's done with this she knows that she's healed then we have this weird statement that says at once jesus realized that power had gone out from him now this is a weird statement and i don't want us to get too hung up on it because again that's this is a statement that's never used anywhere else in scripture that jesus's power is never described this way as a as a sort of a power that goes out from him in fact all his miracles seem to not take any power in a sense the emphasis is always that jesus isn't drained it doesn't take anything from him it's it, he has infinite capacity there's a point being made by the gospel writers here that that I think is not intended to confuse us, but it's just such a weird phrasing. It, it, there's other weird moments. Peter heals people by his shadow at one point. Paul heals people by passing around a handkerchief. These are weird moments. We'll, we'll get to those later. I acknowledge this is a weird way to say it. But I think the point, but, but don't lose sight of what's happening here. She touches him and, and he knows she touched him. Now, I think the next thing is weird is he asks, who touched me? I think the best way to read this is the best is the way to read most questions from God. I think Jesus being fully human, sometimes it's unclear if the questions he asks, he knows the answers or not. Most of the time he does. And, and God does. Think back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and then God comes in and he says, where are you? He knows where they are. He's asking the question so that they will be forced to confront the fact that they're not with him. He's going to ask a similar question to the woman. He knows what happened. He knows exactly what happened. He knows who touched him, and he knows why. And, and here's what it says. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd, and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? It is a weird question. Jesus is walking along in this crowd of people who are mobbing him, and all of a sudden he stops, and he turns around in the crowd, and he says, who touched me? And I'm sure the apostles are like, everybody's touching you. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? But the one person that probably doesn't want to be pointed out that she touched him is this woman. You'll notice she doesn't want to come forward because she's afraid she's in trouble. She's afraid this religious man, this spiritual man has been touched by someone unclean and she's afraid of what it means. So he says, they say, and yet you ask who touched me, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the knowing the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So he really has to kind of keep pressing. And eventually she comes forward. She's terrified. She's very much afraid. She's been healed, but now she's afraid what's going to happen to me because I, I made a religious man unclean. Here's the irony. The concern was her uncleanness would affect religious people. The result is that the opposite was true, that Jesus's cleanness took away her uncleanness rather than her uncleanness taking away his cleanness. And that's one of the things about Jesus. He can't be made unclean, but when he touches people, he can make them clean. And so he, he, he brings her out. And then the question becomes, why is he embarrassing her like this? She just wanted to touch his cloak and go about her way. And this is where we get to the same points that Jesus made about the, uh, the demon possessed man. What happens to her if she goes back to her life and tells people I've been healed? It's been years. They're not going to believe her. Why would they believe her? She's going to say, I touched someone's cloak and now I'm all good. They're not going to believe her. 
It's it's not going to be an easy sell and it's going to be hard to do. Plus, I think it's weird for her. She feels like she's kind of stolen something. Do you see that? She's like, I just need to touch his cloak, but she's trying to do it without being caught. And I think the rest of her life, she goes around thinking, I shouldn't have gotten this. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I got healed, but it was kind of sneaky and it kind of wasn't right. And I think Jesus is trying to take care of all of that. He's trying to reaffirm her. He's trying to encourage her. He's trying to make sure she knows her healing is complete, right? Same thing. It's part of her full healing and restoration, as Lorraine said about the demon-possessed man. So here's what happens. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So what happens? She knows that her healing is real. She is commended in front of everybody around her for her faith. This woman who's been, uh, you know, ostracized and isolated and seen as unclean, he basically confirms her cleanness by even commending her faith. So he's helping her in front of them, and he's helping her for herself. And then he tells her, you have been freed from her suffering. He affirms it. So there won't be doubt later. She won't be like, I wonder if that really worked. No, she's well. She's good. She can go about her day. So Jesus stops and makes sure that that she knows he, he it's hers. She didn't steal it. She came to him believing it could heal her, and he wants to affirm, because you believed it, you came to me. I, again, uh, this is always a shorthand. Faith doesn't heal us. Jesus heal us, heals us. But it's faith that brings us to him. It's faith that motivates to come to him. And that's what he's saying to her. You did the right thing. Your faith brought you to me, and I did indeed heal you. And good for you. You did the right thing. You came to me. You didn't let anything stop you. Not the crowd, not the fears, not the doubts. You came to me, and I did what no other physician has been able to do, because it's what I do. I healed you, and now go be at peace. Go be restored. And this huge crowd has all seen it. And just like that demon-possessed man, they now all know, yeah, she has the official mark. She's officially been made clear. So I think you kind of have those all four of those things. One, he confirms the healing to herself. Two, he confirms that she didn't steal something from Jesus, but she came to him and that was the right thing to do. And he gives his power to her willingly. It didn't really just get stolen from him. Um, three, he commends her in front of everyone so they can see Jesus saying, you did good. And four, he officially recognizes her healing in front of everyone, including Jairus, who leads the synagogue, which brings us back to the other part of this story. This is the middle of a story about Jairus, who's in a hurry. <laughs> and why is he in a hurry? Because Jesus needs to get there to heal his daughter before she dies, and he needs to touch his daughter. And here's Jesus wasting time trying to figure out who touched him. Can you just imagine the anxiety of Jairus, kind of the impatience of Jairus? What, why are we doing this? Why are we stopping? What is going on here? This is a woman. This is not even a woman. This is not even a worthy healing. This is a this. I'm a I'm a synagogue leader. This is a woman and an unclean one at that. And he's giving her all this all this props and all this credit. And and she got to touch his cloak, and my daughter didn't get to touch him at all. And 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 now we're gonna miss it. And and it's kind of in that I think that dynamic that we have this next part of the story. While Jesus was still speaking again to the woman to the crowd, not going with Jairus yet. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? So I think even their phrasing, why bother the teacher anymore? I think it indicates he's kind of antsy and pestering Jesus. Come on, let's go, let's go. And they're like, you know what? It, it doesn't matter. It's too late. It is too late. Now, 
Go back to think about the centurion. Centurion didn't have this problem. <laughs> centurion didn't need Jesus to get to his house. Centurion just said, you can do it from here. Jairus needed Jesus to come and Jesus didn't come. So now they're convinced it's over. It's over. Can't do anything now because no one can raise the dead, right? I mean, this is there's so many sort of understandable but real gaps in this faith of Jairus. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And here again, Jesus is compassionate. He turns to Jairus and he doesn't say, relax, dude, I got this under control. Why are you so antsy about it? I told you I'm come, I'm coming, have more faith. None of that. He just says, don't be afraid. I know that in all of this, you just want your daughter healed, right? That's your bottom line. And I, and I told you I'd do that. Don't be afraid. Just keep believing. Don't stop believing. A little thing like death doesn't change what I can do. It's kind of what Jesus is telling him. And I didn't mess up by stopping to help this other person along the way. It's okay. Just relax. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. I don't know why this is. This is one of those moments, and he does this fairly often, where he, he makes everyone else wait, and he just brings Peter, James, and John. It's kind of like there's things that he wants them to learn, or that he thinks they're ready to learn, or to see that other people maybe aren't for whatever reason. He doesn't want the whole crowd coming. Also, it's probably really not a good idea to bring a huge crowd into a you know grieving family. But So he just takes Peter and James and John. And he says, come with me. And they go in and he says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. This is, this is reminiscent of Abraham laughing and Sarah laughing when Jesus said, you will have a child, even though your womb is barren and you're very old. You know, they laughed. It's the same kind of laughter where it's it's a lack of belief. They're like, he's so stupid. Jesus doesn't even understand the difference between dead and asleep. No, Jesus totally understands. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. So he sends all the mourners out and he just takes mom and dad Peter and James and John. And he went into where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha Chum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. I love the gentleness even of this phrase. I, and then he addresses her. You know, again, it's a very personal thing. She's dead, but he comes in and he talks to her. Just like he would say to the lame man, get up and walk. He's not talking to a dead person and saying, wake up. <laughs> but he says, little girl, it's very affectionate. Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. That is a fair response. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, one of those weird moments. The whole crowd was waiting to see what he was going to do. Did he just assume, and he's letting them all think, apparently, that when he sent them away, that she was, in fact, dead, that it was, in fact, too late, and that he didn't, in fact, heal her. But people are going to see this little girl. <laughs> I mean, she's clearly not dead. So I'm not quite, again, I'm not quite sure I understand this whole don't tell people thing that, he's, that he does. It, it, it's too early. It's not time. He doesn't want, it's going to spread anyway. I'm not sure what the deal is. But again, this is a, a great story. And I even like that little touch at the end. Hey, she's hungry. You know, feed her. It's what you do when dead persons come back to life. You feed them. Remember that. So, you know, it's just like, hey, give, give her something to eat. I just think these are two amazing stories. And the way they're put together I think really shows us the 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 reasonable desire and and the correct faith and understanding that if I can get close enough to Jesus, if I can get my daughter close enough to Jesus, if the woman can get close enough to Jesus, that's where I need to be. That's where the healing is. And yet the gaps in that faith, where 
where they don't understand that Jesus' authority supersedes touch. You know, he doesn't mean that. He, it's him. He's the one who heals. It's not a mechanic. It's not his robe. It's, it's none of that, but it's just him. Um, but I love the compassion, the way he stops. He addresses this woman. He verifies everything. He takes the time to do that, much to the distress of Jairus. But in doing so, it also gives him an opportunity to do an even bigger miracle with Jairus's daughter. Um, we'll read the other two versions of this, but before we do, and then we'll probably wrap up with that. Um, there's a lot more stories, but but we, we're, we're, we're already up to 830. So before we read the last two versions of this, though, anybody have any comments on this story? Well, in some ways, I mean, he was still being quiet about the other thing, but it does seem like he's ramping up, like you were saying, because like before, too, when he killed that one guy and he's like, OK, now go present yourself to like the priest. And like here he's basically with her, like acting like the priest and right in front of like Jairus and like who, who else is there, you know, and stuff like that. And so he's taking a like huge step in authority and a huge like role as like the messiah or whatever you know i think that's definitely right and and even telling the synagogue leader right not i mean so uh, let's just think of it this way if if one of my children died and you all knew one of my children died and and then god healed that child and then said to me don't tell anybody who's going to know anyway my entire church Right. I mean, <laughs> you're going to see my living child. It's, it's not like he said, hide her away or pretend she's dead. He just said, don't tell <laughs> anybody. You would all know. And the same has got to be true of the synagogue leader, even if he doesn't say anything. And how again, how could he not at some point? But but even if he doesn't say anything, everybody's going to know. All the people who attend that synagogue are going to know. Look, Jairus's daughter is here and well and alive. Isn't that weird? I heard she died. So it's even there, it's a little weird that he's like, don't tell anybody. It, it's it's already up to the ante that he brought her back to life. You know, it, it, he passed a point of no return to keep this quiet. He didn't heal her when she was just sick. He waited until she was dead. And that meant a lot more people are going to talk about it, no matter what he says. So anyway, I just think it's you're right. It is an up, he is upping the ante all along. And he's got and he's there's no question about it. Any other thoughts? I have a question about Jairus. He's a synagogue leader. He's kind of risking his his um, stature reputation. in the synagogue. Yeah, his reputation by coming to Jesus. He, he kind of is. And, and I, to me, it seems like his faith is not real strong. It's more like, this is my last ditch, ditch effort. I've heard this guy can heal people. I'm going to try it. I think both of these stories are people who are desperate, right? So their faith arises out of the desperation on some level, um, mm -hmm. which is not to take away from them. It's just a reality of humanity. Sometimes we don't really cry out to God until we've tried other things. But mm -hmm. but, I, but I also think, um, you know, synagogue is actually a really broad term in the New Testament. It's kind of like tabernacle. We always think of tabernacles as very religious things, but it just means tent. Synagogue really just means gathering. Um, the Romans actually had synagogues which would just be political synagogues or gatherings of political people. It's probably in this case, because he's called a synagogue leader, it probably is religious in nature. It probably is a Jewish gathering, but it doesn't mean he has sort of the same sort of status or reputation to protect as a Pharisee would. He's not kind of that level. He's not kind of a politically involved or in the Sanhedrin. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's, He's endorsing Jesus, whether he wants to or not, by doing that. He's desperate enough mm -hmm. to endorse Jesus. And at least for the people in his synagogue, 
that is that is something. It may not hurt his reputation because I think the Jews' opinions of him are pretty split. The Jewish leaders above the synagogue leaders are not so split. They're 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 mm-hmm. more more uniformly against him. But I think at the synagogue leader level, there's probably still some room, you know, in culturally. But I think you're right. I think he's desperate. Anybody else? I have a weird question, kind of related to this, but not, I guess. Um, In 41, I've always wondered, it seems like I've seen this a couple other times in the Bible, where it shows what he said and says what it means. Do the translators do that? Or, I, I, you know, the Talith Kum or whatever it is. Right. Uh, so I don't I'm, what's the origin I'm going back to this is Mark so here's the deal Mark is writing to the Romans so it's Mark who's writing that um, and the reason he is is because that's an Aramaic phrase and the Aramaics, uh, Aramaic would have been spoken more often by Jews so he's writing Mark we know is writing partly for the Romans to read so he's giving them that explanation because the Romans wouldn't have known what that meant now he could have not quoted the Aramaic I suppose and just said he said to her little girl get up but I think Mark wanted to give that 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 touch of legitimacy, I think, to actually give the actual quote and then say this is what it means. So usually when you see that in the Gospels, it's the Gospel writer themselves making that translation for one reason or another. And in the case of Mark, it's because of who Mark's writing to. He knows that not all of his readers know Hebrew or Aramaic, and it's, it's Aramaic in this case. Jesus usually spoke in Aramaic, by the way, when he wasn't speaking in Greek, one or the other. Thank you. That clears that up. I've always just kind of wondered if, you know, did the translators just decide not to translate that? But now it's, <laughs> I know it's the writer that does it. So right. thank you. Yeah, it's usually almost always the gospel writers. Yep. Yep. And that usually gives you a hint. They're like, oh, they must not assume the people reading this will know that language. Um, so. I, I do like that he calls her little girl too. I mean, especially if she's like 12, isn't that considered like a woman? Yeah, I mean, it's she hasn't probably been bat mitzvahed yet because she's sick. So technically she would still be a girl, but yes, you're right. She's, she's, it's, 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 it's affectionate and endearing to call someone that age, a little girl in a sense. Yeah. All right. Let's just read the same story in a couple other versions. Um, I'll just, before we even read it, I'll just right off the top, tell you one difference you're going to see is that in, in at least one of the other versions, and it might be in both of them, it actually has Jairus already knowing his daughter has died says, my daughter has just died, come and put your hand on you and she will live, which does change the story a little bit from what we just read. I don't think it's a problem. You can you can sort of deal with it however you want. I don't think it's an incompatibility. I think it is the fact that at a certain point in the story, he knew she had died, right? So some of these are sort of picking up the story after the, in a sense, it's just, it's just, again, chronologically, it isn't exactly right, but they're sort of just taking the assumption that Jesus still went to his house after Jairus knew his child had died. There was still a part of him that believed that if Jesus came, things would be better, or they would have stopped. His servants said, don't even bother, but Jairus still had Jesus come because Jesus told him, don't be afraid. So these stories just sort of, they leave out that part of it. It's kind of like they leave out the prologue of the story. I don't know why. I think they're I'm making a different point here. I think Mark was partly making the point about, you know, where Jairus's faith was compared to where the woman was compared to even the centurion, which would make sense if he's writing to Romans. He's sort of honoring the centurion a little bit in that version of the story too, which Mark might do as he's writing to Romans. And the others are emphasizing Jesus's power to raise a dead girl to life. So they just skip right to the fact that she's dead. 
that's all I think is happening in that difference. But if you have a different thought on that, you can share it uh, also when we're done. But here's the stories. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader and came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. You can also see that this is, and this is interesting because it's actually Matthew in this case, who's more compressed than Mark. Usually it's the other way around. But you can also see this version is just much shorter. They, He's just left out lots of details um, about the interactions because his interest is less in those human dynamics that Mark was giving us for whatever reason. It's kind of a flip of how they usually do things. But he's less interested at this point in that than he is in the power that Jesus is displaying. And so he doesn't get into where she's at or where Jairus is at or kind of their movement through this. He just tells us the little bullets of what happened to him. Um, if I uh, take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. This is confirmation of what I said. In, in Mark, he says, don't tell anybody. In Matthew, it says news spread through all the region. It doesn't matter if the guy tells anybody. Everyone's going to know this story anyway. I, I think this is just confirming that. Luke 8, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This version makes it even more clear how all of this is a, is a confirmation in front of the whole crowd, because it makes it clear. She told the whole story in front of everybody, and Jesus commended her in front of everybody. When Je While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with them except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Uh, we'll, we'll stop there because it's 8.30 and I'll have less to prepare for next week. Um, any comments, thoughts on any of the stories tonight? Uh, I, I think a couple of you commented. It, it is, this is kind of a flurry of stories and they're all about Jesus' power, his authority, that the publicity <laughs> is ramping up. But I think the compassion is also becoming more abundantly clear. Um, the way he's he's thinking about people as he's healing them, not merely demonstrating his power, but doing it in ways which also restores them. I like that phrase that Lorraine used, that also restores them and heals them. And we're, we're kind of seeing that for each of these people, even his compassion to Jairus when he, you know, I, I think Jairus is, 
again, he's he's not he's he's not of the great faith the centurion was, and yet Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that. He's very compassionate because this man has just lost his daughter, and he says, "Don't be afraid. We've got this. It's okay." Um, I just like his his approach throughout all this is just very powerful, very compassionate, very smart, and I think that's what we see about his miracles. He is good enough. He's smart enough. He's powerful enough, and he's present. He's here. Um, any 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 thoughts? Anybody have any thoughts they want to wrap up with for this evening or? doesn't have to be the wrap up but any any thoughts well i uh, well josh's story really stood out to me because uh you know he's one of the leaders of the synagogue and so uh and i even read this there's this uh uh person that wrote a bible study about this and they actually said when they're writing the bible study that to really get impactful on the story that the person said, I'm going to take some liberties here. I'm not, and she said, uh, it was a woman that wrote the Bible story, a Bible study. And she said, I'm going to take some liberties here to try to, you know, she said, I'm going to add in details. None of the details I add in are going to, you know, be counter to scripture, but I'm going to add in some details to try to make it more, you know, more, the story more alive, more real. And so uh, and that was one of the points that she fleshed out was that this was a synagogue leader who was, you know, had, was obviously aware of jesus was probably among those that uh were you know watchful of jesus because he was doing things that were so you know countercultural, and he that this may have been a powerful move for him even though he didn't uh even though he didn't have the faith to say if you say she's healed and she's healed but if uh but if uh it was still a powerful move on his part because just actually approaching Jesus may have been a really big deal for him. Well, and I think that the same is true with the woman. I, you know, I think, it, it, you know, when I'm comparing and contrasting him with the with the centurion, it's really not to pick on him. It's really to emphasize the centurion. And I think the story is told that way to make that point a little bit. But but you're right. I think one of the things about Jesus is he takes you where you're at. And I think this is important because we we have gotten in our head, some of us have somewhere along the way that 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 Jesus' ability to work with us is dependent upon the size of our faith. And then we become very concerned about whether we believe enough. But what Jesus routinely shows is come to me with faith. It can be the faith size of a mustard seed. The power is in me, not in your faith. So you come to me. Your faith brings you to me. If all you can do is touch my cloak, I'll work with that. If all you can do is, is beg me to come to your house, I'll work with that. If all you can do is climb up into a tree, remember the Zacchaeus story? If all you can do is climb up into a tree to watch me, I'll work with that. You know, I think that that's the point. Jesus isn't really like, well, I'm going to I'm going to judge your faith and if it's not enough, I'm not helping you. I mean, even the apostles, right? They're just ba they're just like, don't you care? And he's like, you don't have much faith, but that's okay. I'm still going to stop the wind and the waves. <laughs> you know, I think he's 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 not holding out on us waiting for us to sort of earn this that's the whole point about jesus he is eager to help us all he all he's asking in a sense is just approach me you know just 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 come to me and that takes some faith like you say take some faith from gyrus um yeah and and we, we talked a little bit about it i think you might have been off for a little bit we talked a little bit about i'm not sure where he was in the synagogue you know in the leadership whether it would have been hard for him to come to jesus or not but either way he, there is a faith in his approaching Jesus period. And maybe it was greater because he was, it was a, a larger hit to his reputation, which is something Sue brought up. Um, whatever the case is, I agree with you. I think it's that the, the there's, 
there's the this these stories you know even the even the demon possessed man it says weirdly that the demon possessed man met jesus at the, at the lake so you got to wonder there you know jesus didn't go seek him out in the tombs why is that guy there was there a part of him that still came to jesus even in his demon possession and said help me you know we don't know it doesn't tell us but it is interesting that it says he met jesus there it doesn't say jesus went to find him so I, I do think that's, you know, we see this constant recurring thread of would Jesus heal someone who didn't ask? Sure. And there might be examples where he did. I'd have to think about it. But the but the recurring theme most often is people come to him. And when they come to him, he responds. And he says, your faith made you well. Not because their faith is magic, but because their faith brought them to him. And he is magic, if you want to use that word. So, yeah, good. I like that, Jolene. Thanks. Any Anybody else? It's good. I think my own my own testimony experience, my own, you know, approaching the gospel was so as I look back on it, was so full of uh, was was so weak in understanding, so lacking in humility, <laughs> so full of desperation without understanding and just a just a just a plea to God that if he was there, would he just please understand me? That was that was it. I didn't I didn't understand anything of what I was doing, and I think Jesus said to me at that moment, "Your faith has made you well." You know that that's that's the best you could bring to me and your little arrogant teenage self. I'll take it. You know, and 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 I'll work with that. And uh, I just think that's the way most of us are, if we're honest about it. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.